You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. We're taking a few Sundays to look at passages in Scripture having to do with marriage. Uh, this, uh, this morning, we're going to look at Ephesians 5. So maybe you can open your Bibles to Ephesians 5. We'll look at verses uh, 25 through 33. Uh, last week, we considered the, uh, the framework of marriage. Uh, and last week, uh, I argued that Scripture tells us that marriage, again, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 last week. Scripture tells us that uh, God's intention for marriage is that marriage would uh, serve him that through marriage we would actually be able to uh, serve God more effectively, uh, serve Him for His own glory. Uh, So the way we understand marriage is a means by which God is served. And this morning I want to dig down a little deeper and I want to consider uh, the essence of marriage. Uh, uh, Last week was more the framework. Uh, The essence of marriage. How do we understand marriage? I mean, everything that is involved with that. What is it for? Why do we do it? Why ought we do it? Uh, What's the point after we do it? And then uh, maybe this is more pressing than ever. For those people who've been married a long time, uh, they too can wonder, why are we doing this? What's up with this? What's the purpose? And they can be led astray and they can begin thinking about marriage as having a purpose that's utterly different than the purpose that's described in Ephesians 5:25 through 33. And so uh, we're going to look at this passage and recenter ourselves on what really is the, is the essence of marriage. Uh, the essence of marriage has to do with this broadcasting quality of marriage, that marriage actually says something to a watching world. And so, little theologians, I'd like for you guys to, uh, well, what I want you to draw, you've never heard of, a, a megaphone. That's what I want you to draw. So, if you can't draw a megaphone, you know those things you hold and you speak into, and it, just draw speakers, lots of speakers, because marriage is supposed to uh, make uh, Jesus' relationship with his bride, the church, louder. Marriage amplifies Jesus and his selfless, suffering love for his own bride. That's what the essence of the church is. So just draw loads of speakers. Lots of, uh, of scenes are being made noisy. So Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 25, that's what we'll look at. Let me uh, also add, uh, add this. Um, I, I don't want us to look at this, pa- this passage and just focus on the aspect of the role of husband and the role of, uh, of wife, because it's, of course it's, it's uh, evident in the passage. Um, I have a separate sermon uh, to discuss the role uh, of husband and wife, and I want to look at this passage in light of the roles of husband and wife at that time. Uh, next week, just so you know, uh, I'll be talking about singleness. There's two really interesting passages in Scripture that address singleness. So uh, the topic of singleness uh, next week. Uh, so that would be three sermons, framework of marriage, essence of marriage, singleness. And we want to talk uh, about the roles within marriage and physical intimacy in the context of marriage. So uh, those are, the, those are the, the five sermons. The strange interruption is that Andrew is going to be here June 7th. And so that kind of throws things uh, out of kilter. So there might be two Sundays before we hit that, uh, that last Sunday on um, 
physical intimacy. So that'll be weird. Visitors will come, and out of the blue, we're talking um, about physical intimacy, but that's okay. Ephesians 5 is where we'll look this morning. You should have your Bibles open there. Let's, uh, let's ask God to guide us before we read. Our Father, we uh, pray that you'd be with us in the reading of Scripture, in the preaching of Scripture for me, and that you would be with us in the hearing of Scripture. And then, Father, we would ask that as we go from this place that you would uh, uh, be with us by your Spirit in the application of your Scripture. Uh, reading, preaching, hearing, applying. Thank you, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Ephesians 5, uh, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle of any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. You know, there's something uh, about having an awareness of our strengths and weaknesses, but living life in such a way that no one discovers our weaknesses, they can discover our strengths, that's fine. There's there's something about protecting our lives in such a way that I can know my weaknesses, but you shall never know my weaknesses. The silly example, you just just remember taking uh, uh, tests in high school or college. You can only study so much, and there's always a, a, a part of what you're supposed to study that you're very weak on. It's like, I studied everything well, but boy, I hope they don't ask me a question about this particular subject. And when you sit down to take the test... And that, que- that particular subject is in question one, and in question two, and in question three, and your heart is just deflated. Oh no, my weaknesses. My weaknesses, right here in front of me. And I'm going to have to pay a price for these weaknesses. In, uh, in his book on uh, marriage, Tim Keller says that um, in every new marriage, there's, there's always this period in which the masks remain, And he says it's about two years, and after two years, uh, the masks fall off. And what he's saying is he's saying that when you're married uh, in year one and year two, uh, you're you're, uh, advertising all of your strengths, and you're trying to hide those weaknesses, but there comes a time in marriage where the mask falls off and your spouse sees your strengths and your weaknesses, and it's very exposing. And, And I wonder if two years is too short a period of time. I know that there are married couples right here that still haven't removed the mask. They're still trying as hard as they can to hide those weaknesses that only their strengths would be shown. Maybe it's not two years, maybe it's closer to four 
before the mask falls. And this is one of those passages that exposes us. If you're married and you read this passage, I actually want you to be exposed. There's something about familiar passages that we just gloss over them quickly. And we can misunderstand them for much of our lives because we're glossing over them quickly. But I want you to see that this passage exposes something about marriage that's rather uncomfortable. If you think about what most people, a Christian and non-Christian, would say the purpose of marriage is, I don't know, uh, I don't know what your answer would be. My hunch is, is that personal fulfillment has to be high on the list. What's the purpose of marriage? It's, it's personal fulfillment. Uh, the reason I get married is I actually get something out of it. There's some kind of fulfillment that I receive as a result of being married. Now, that's a very crass way to describe that reality, but I think it's there. I think it's there. Uh, I remember when uh, websites like eHarmony were uh, just getting started. I'm old enough to remember that. And I was, re I was reading, um, I've always liked technology, and uh, reading business magazines about this technology, this ability to uh, match people together. And I, I'll never forget this quote from one man who was working on, I guess it was an algorithm. You guys know I don't know what an algorithm is. But it, working on some algorithm that would help to pair people. And he said this very striking thing thing, it's in print, and he said, you know, the reality is that the only, the only soulmate for a person is themselves. And he said that just kind of flamboyantly. I mean, really, the only soulmate for a person, a person is themselves. and I think, well, why are you in this business? <laughs> why are you in this business if that's the reality? But it's true. It's true. The only true soulmate is yourself. And so as, uh, as we think about the purpose of marriage, it's not a stretch to think that marriage is all about personal fulfillment. Have you talked to someone uh, who uh, wants to be married and, and asked them to describe why they want to be married? A lot of the answers have to do with personal fulfillment. So I think that that's a mistaken uh, notion of what the essence or purpose of marriage is. And I would expect that in Christian circles that that purpose would be uh, far off the mark in their minds. But oftentimes I'll hear Christians talk about uh, the purpose of marriage, sometimes in terms of personal fulfillment, but sometimes in terms of this. This, I think, is, a, is another mistaken notion of the essence of marriage. They won't talk about marriage in terms of personal fulfillment, but they'll talk about it in terms of natural law social order. Here's what I mean by that. That marriage does something for the world to make the world better. That marriage is this general gift that God applies to the world that the world would actually be made better. There's, it's creational. It's in Genesis 1 and 2. And so the real purpose of marriage is the kind of purpose that even a non-believer can experience. Because the purpose of marriage is to promote social order in the world. So for instance, people are very selfish. Uh, marriage is God's way of putting people together so that their selfishness would rub off over time. You hear how it works? Uh, uh, people are sexually depraved, but God has given the gift of marriage to the entire world so that there would be some kind of context in which that sexual depravity would be held at bay. It's open to Christians and non-Christians for that reason. 
to fend off selfishness, to fend off sexual depravity. God gives the world the gift of marriage so that the world would be populated, so that people would come together and they would produce children, and these children would grow up in a home with a man and a woman who is the mom and dad. And that would be a healthy way for children to grow up. So God gave the gift of marriage to the entire world for the well-being of children. Or maybe God gave the gift of marriage for the purpose of just general safety in society. It's better to have a society that's ordered this way. It's not good for a man to live uh, as a rebel or as a rogue. It's good for him to know that there are things he's got to do in life to take care of his wife and kiddos. So it just kind of promotes this busyness or safety in society. Now, I hope you like all those things. All those things are great. And marriage is a gift, and we know that non-believers partake of the gift of marriage as well. And these things are great. Uh, marriage does uh, have a way of promoting a social order and the preservation of societies and civilizations. And uh, for that reason, it's good. But it's not the essence of marriage, is it? And sometimes I, I talk to Christians and, and they describe marriage in such a way that, I, that, that sound, it sounds like you're just, you're just a moral pagan. Of the pagan variety, you're just a really nice one with an optimistic outlook. What really is then the essence of marriage if it's not personal fulfillment and if it's not social order, preservation of civilization? Well, last week we said that marriage is intended to serve God. That man was to be a worker, working for the glory of God in a special position that God had placed him. And that man needed a helper for the purpose of working towards God's glory. But what I want us to see this morning is that marriage serves God by proclaiming the gospel of His Son. You see how we're going just one, one step deeper. Marriage serves God, last week we looked at that, by proclaiming the gospel of a son. That's what that service to God looks like in marriage. And God has given this capsule, this instrument, whereby Christians would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it involves personal fulfillment, but it's more. It involves social order, but it's more. It involves the broadcasting of the gospel. I want to say there's two things. Uh, the first one will take uh, a longer time. That's the essence of marriage. And the second will be short, uh, a better vision for marriage. I want to say, say three things about what a better vision for marriage might look like. But first, the essence of marriage. You know, marriage is easily understood for our own personal glory. And the reason I say that this passage is not a passage specifically or uh, um, alone about roles within marriage, you know, we can look at the passage and we can see that, that a, a man certainly has a position of authority. He is the head of the wife, and the wife is called to, uh, to submit to her husband, to respect her husband, and that's clearly in the passage. You can, so you can see both of them joined in verse 33. Uh, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Husbands and wives have a certain role in this marriage relationship. One is the head, verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. And then one is called to uh, submit, verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so it's a passage about marriage roles, but not too fast, not too fast. Because we look at the husband having this position of authority over the wife, and we look at the wife and her position to submit, but actually what we find is that every Christian is called to live lives in such a way. I want to draw your attention to what the husband is called to have a position of authority over the wife that he might sacrifice for the wife. So it's authority, and then he sacrifices before her. But if you just jump ahead a little bit in Ephesians 5 and look at verse 2, look what we see there. Ephesians 5, 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's exactly what a husband is to do. That's what a husband is to do. And yet Ephesians 5.2 is addressed to everyone. Everyone is called to sacrifice themselves for brothers and sisters in the church. And look at Ephesians 5.21. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everyone in the church is called to submit to their brother and sister in the church. So if the passage is only about specific roles within marriage, how is it that those roles within marriage actually find their complement outside the marriage relationship? It's a passage for single people as well. This submission, this sacrificing, these are things that are not simply meant for marriage, but all of us as Christians are called to do this. I think the reason that's important is this. I think that sometimes uh, husbands and wives can uh, treat their lives as as if they're just totally separate from life outside of marriage. That their relationship is special, their special callings and attachments to their relationship that don't apply to anyone else. And they'll say things to single people like, but you're not married, you don't know what it's like. Have you ever said that, you husband or wife, to a single person? But you're not married. You don't know what it's like. It's interesting that uh, marriage seems to be a laboratory in such a way that the kinds of things that I'm called to do as a married man are, th- are very similar to the kinds of things I was called to do before I was married. And I'm tasting these things in a very deep way, to be sure, but I'm in no position to boast Say, yeah, you know, it's, to be sure, you know, it's hard, it's hard for you to sacrifice to someone else, but you have no idea what it's like, you single person, because I'm married, and I know far more what it's like to sacrifice. You single person, you're called to sacrifice. You're called to do that. This reality actually is refreshing to our notion of what marriage is like. If I could speak just to married people, uh, I, I want to say to you that your failures are actually uh, helpful to your brothers and sisters in the church. I'm giving you a hint of what I think a better vision for marriage is. But you struggling to sacrifice for your wife actually holds a lesson 
for your brother or sister who's not married. And your struggle to submit to your husband, wife, actually holds in it a lesson for your single sister. We ought not boast about our position. No one knows the suffering I have to endure, right? No one knows my struggles. I'm married. It's all child's play to you. That's serious when you're married. Well, my, my counsel is, is to just, <laughs> just understand that marriage makes you a better member of the church. It makes you a better member of the church. But your wife whom is very difficult to sacrifice for, she's actually helping you to sacrifice for your brothers and sisters in the life of the church. And, and wife, when it's, it's tremendously hard for you to submit to your husband and respect your husband, well, you're actually providing a lesson to others in the church that single people might grow in their ability to submit to brothers and sisters. I think this is an important reality. The, the passage is, is not simply about these roles, but it kind of expands into uh, the overall life of the church. It's not just for married people. It's also for single people. And I think that if we, if we understand this passage is only about roles, I think it's very easy for married people to boast. That sound odd? It's easy for them to boast. That this passage is meant just for just for my wife and I, and it's really hard, and you don't know any, anything about this. We boast. And it's, it's like a husband and a wife are serving their own glory in the context of marriage. We also talk about how single people teach married people. But here's, here's where, what I'm driving at. If we properly understand what marriage is, we begin to see that, that marriage has to be understood as a vehicle to show forth Christ's glory. If you look at verse 25, we have that wonderful phrase, as Christ. As Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ. And then Paul begins to talk about the works of Christ, something that Christ did. And he says uh, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the challenge for us is to understand that this is not just a passage about self-sacrifice, physical sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross for the church, so I should die on the cross for my wife. I don't think that, I think it's close, but it's not exactly right, is it? Because when Paul is talking about the work of Christ, he says, gave himself up for her, not referring to that singular moment of his death on the cross so that marriage serves the purpose of describing what self-sacrificial love looks like, right? The husband who jumps in front of a bus and dies so that his wife and children would be kept safe. I don't have a problem with husbands doing that. You should do that. But if there's no bus... You should still be doing that. Because the suffering of Christ is not just a reference to his death on the cross, but all of his life. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 is this great passage about the humility of Christ. But Philippians 2.5 begins this way. Paul says, "Um, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we would say, yes, because he died on the cross. But verse 7 says, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that when we are to understand in Ephesians 5.25 that uh, Jesus gave his life for the church, that's not a passage directly related to the cross. It is a passage about all of his earthly suffering. And Paul says in Philippians 2 that that earthly suffering of Paul was setting aside the, that a certain status that he had, that he wouldn't use that status for self, but for God. Every day of Jesus' life was like that, setting aside his status so that it wouldn't be used for himself, but for his Father. And that would be the motto, not, not my will be done, but your will be done. And Jesus suffered every day of his life. That's how we're to understand Jesus gave himself. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying... Husbands and wives show forth Jesus Christ most of all when the husband jumps in front of a bus and saves his wife and his children. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church when he suffers for her every day of marriage. Every day. It's the suffering aspect of Jesus that Paul is admonishing husbands to bring into their marriage. It's not the one-time death. Oh yes, I would totally die for my wife. Paul would say, okay, how'd you do that today? How'd that happen today? Perfectly legitimate question. It's the regular suffering of Christ that a husband is called to endure. This is why this is so meaningful. I don't want us to walk away from this place this morning just with the notion that marriage displays Christ. Marriage is meant to show forth Christ. Marriage is meant to show something about Christ. It's not showing forth Christ in an objective form, uh, almost as if marriage is like a transparency that's laid on a projector and then the image goes up. It's not just Christ generally understood, it's the suffering of Christ, the patience of Christ, the, the loving, the beholding, the endurance, the perseverance for the filthiness of his bride. That is what marriage broadcasts. Do you see what I mean when I say that this passage just exposes all kinds of stuff? It's like, I used to love this passage until I heard you preach it, and now I'm not so sure. The essence of marriage, it tells us something about Jesus, and it's something specific. That Jesus loved his bride perfectly. That Jesus didn't flinch, but followed through with the will of God. That, that Jesus gave his life to his bride every day of that existence. That Jesus loved and cared for her, was patient with her. When she fought against him, when she refused to listen to him, when she refused to believe in him, Jesus loved his church. When she spoke against him publicly like Peter, Jesus loved Peter. And she was stubborn and she just wouldn't listen. Jesus said it again and again and again. It's not the cross. Men, I know I'm speaking specifically to you, but you take the lead in this passage. 
I'll say more about that in a bit, but you take the lead in this passage. Uh, According to Paul, uh, your affection for your wife is to be a lifelong, enduring affection every day. It's not just taking a bullet for her, unless you can be shot every day. It's regular, it's faithful. And Jesus did so when his bride was not just filthy, but unlovable, rebellious, sinful, running from him, hiding from him. Jesus loved that kind of bride. Okay, so now that I've, I've kind of changed the tone uh, to feel pretty stoic, somber, let me say three things about a better vision for marriage. And the first is this. I think this is uh, probably one that we delight in uh, most of all. Marriage evangelizes the world. There's a public aspect to marriage. Husbands and wives, you're actually watched, not just by uh, people in the church. I mean, those are the people you tend to talk most about marriage. But you're actually being watched by the world. Okay, now think about that. This marriage serves to broadcast that Jesus suffered for his church. How do I let the world know that? You ever talk to a non-believer about the struggle of marriage? You ever done that? Have you ever confessed to a non-believer that uh, you also uh, struggle with loving your wife as earnestly and faithfully as you ought to? Have you ever had a conversation like that? You know you can, right? Because you have Christ Jesus who died for you and who loves you despite your sinfulness. So you actually can talk to folks in the world about marriage in such a way that you can show your own brokenness. Because out of that brokenness, Jesus Christ came to save you. And in your marriage, you have that opportunity to evangelize the rescue that you have in Christ Jesus. You actually can speak with transparency to your non-believing friends about marriage. Try saying to your non-believing friend that you did something hurtful to her and you had to confess to her that it was, it was a sin. Share that. Why wouldn't you share that with your non-believing neighbor? Because then you have an opportunity to say, I'm grateful that I have Christ Jesus who never ran from me, who was always faithful towards me. And I'm grateful that I have forgiveness in Him. I'm grateful that my marriage is sustained not by my efforts, but by what he is doing through my marriage. Paul clearly believes that marriage has an evangelistic purpose. You're being watched, husbands. Wives, you're actually being watched. What what happens when you say to your non-believing friends' wives, when you say to them that you struggle submitting to your husband, what's their response? My hunch is their response would be, well, you should just stop then. That's easy. Don't submit to him anymore, because that's lame. But you say, I have to submit to him, because if I don't submit to him, then I'm showing that I distrust what God has done for me. I must respect him, not simply because I'm told to respect him, but because respecting him shows forth my respect for my heavenly father. How's your non-believing friend going to hear that? Silliness, right? Poppycock. But you can say, I trust my Heavenly Father far more than I trust my, hu- my husband anyway. 
And I trust that my Father knows what He's doing with me and to me. And I'm very bad at this, but I'm called to do it. Marriage evangelizes the world. That's the first thing in terms of a better vision for marriage. The second is this, is that marriage nourishes the church. Marriage nourishes the church. Here's what I mean by this. Um, Husbands and wives, you actually have an opportunity to uh, show your single friends what exactly it looks like to suffer for one another, to submit to one another. You, You have that opportunity. And I would encourage you, if you're married, to speak openly to, your, to single brothers and sisters in the church and to uh, sh- describe to them the struggle, the struggle of submitting your marriage to Christ that it would go- bring glory to Him. Use this as an opportunity to show single, single uh, brothers and sisters what exactly it looks like to submit to another what exactly it looks like to suffer for another. Your marriages ought to be uh, opportunities for single people to look and to, even if they don't wish to be married themselves, we'll talk about that, even if they don't wish to be married themselves, they see that submission's beautiful. It's lovely to behold. And they'll see that sacrifice is wonderful. I love seeing this man sacrifice for his wife. And I'm encouraged to sacrifice for others. I, I love seeing this woman submit to her husband and to do it in such a loving, tender way that I'm encouraged to, to submit myself to my brothers and sisters in the church. I don't have to be afraid because I can see her do that. And I can give up fighting for myself because I see him do that for his wife. Marriage nourishes the church. Okay, so there's two. Marriage evangelizes the world and marriage nourishes the church. And the third is this. Uh, Marriage draws us towards God. Marriage actually draws us towards God. Uh, Husbands and wives, you need to understand that your marriage is not there to frustrate your Christian walk. Your marriage is there actually to show forth who God is and his affection for you. Doesn't it sound rather uh, pedantic to say, you should, husbands and wives, read your Bible together and you should pray together? Well, of course, obviously. But marriage actually draws you to God in such a way that as you're coming together and you're reading Scripture together, you're praying together, you're confessing your sins one to another, you are actually being drawn closer to God. This is what service to God looks like. And the labor of of, uh, spending time reading Scripture to your wife is a labor that actually benefits you. Actually benefits you. It draws you closer to your Heavenly Father as you submit your marriage to God. Well, these are just just three things. Marriage evangelizes the world. Marriage uh, nourishes the church. And then marriage draws husbands and wives actually uh, closer to God. Let's give thanks to God for the gift of marriage. And we'll confess faith together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that marriage evangelizes the lost, nourishes the church, and draws us towards you. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that Jesus has shown us what that looks like. We are far more sinful than we possibly imagined ourselves to be, and yet Jesus comes to us. He's beyond our imagination.
He suffered for us, died for us, and He rose again for us. Now, Father, would that be the message of our marriages to the world and to each other? Jesus suffered for us. In His name we pray. Amen.